This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Ollie Tikkanen. Welcome, everyone. As a listener of this podcast, you probably know very well the importance of being active throughout the day. The challenge is just how to actually get it done in a busy daily life and a static standing has also its own downsides. There might be a solution for you, a treadmill desk from Germany called Walkerlusen. What is a treadmill desk? In short, a workstation that allows you to walk slowly while you work at your desk. But in Walker Lucent's case, it is treadmill without the motor. So it's silent and you decide the speed as you are the engine of the treadmill. It also has sliding integrated desk and backrest so you can have several different postures and can avoid overloading parts of the body for extended periods of time. At least for me, different activities and postures just fit better with certain work tasks and Walker Lucent enables natural flow between postures. I've been testing the treadmill myself and it simply delivers. Every detail is thought through. So I'm glad as we can now offer Walker Lucent desk treadmill for the listeners of this podcast with 10% discount. To get the discount, use the code SITLESS, one word written together in the store of walkerlucent.com. That is written walk as in walking and allusion like the second part of revolution or evolution. And now it's time for the introduction of the guest of today's episode. I'm very excited about the forthcoming episode as we are going to be talking about measurement of physical activity, differences between evaluation and research, and whether we should focus our research locally or globally. And also whether we should be more positive in our research communication. We will also touch upon the importance of teaching in academia. Our guest has done his PhD at University of Oxford about the validity and reliability of self-reported travel behavior. Currently, he's working as a reader in physical activity for health at the University of Edinburgh. Ladies and gentlemen, I am honored to introduce our guest, Dr. Paul Kelly. Welcome, Paul. Uh, thanks for having me, Oli. Yeah, great to have you. Um, I noticed that in your Twitter handle you have narrowboat ball. Could you tell listeners that a bit about narrowboats and how fast they actually go? I'm very happy to try it. So um, a, a narrowboat uh, gets its name because it's only, um, I guess, about eight or so feet wide, um, and it nav- navigates on the canals. Um, because sort of the um, human-built um, waterways um, that we have across the UK, but of course in in Europe and other parts of the world as well. And, um, you know, traditionally for moving cargo and um, industrial revolution um, kind of drive, but uh, these days they've become kind of recreational, um, uh, uh, recreational um, ways that we have our holidays. So, yeah. um you know, we we can we we walk around, and they're about three three miles per hour if you walk alongside the, the narrowboat, and then 
every mile or so you jump off and um, have a, you know, play with a lock and help the boat rise up and down to go over a, a hill or something. And yeah, it's just a, a wonderful way to, to spend your leisure time. So I, um, I strongly recommend if you ever get the opportunity to have a look at that. Yeah, yeah. When I was staying in in UK, I I saw quite a lot of those in in Wales, and I I was in place. Uh, I don't really know how to pronounce it in Wales, Welsh, but uh, Langollen, and they have this bridge, and you don't go under that bridge with the boat, but you go on the bridge. So it's a it's a big bridge, and you can go over. And I thought that that's that's amazing amazing place. Yes, this this is a very famous bridge you describe, and um, it's spectacular. And yes, uh, if for any of your listeners who have an opportunity to visit, I, I highly recommend. Yeah, yeah, perfect way to relax, going three miles per hour on on a canal. So, if if we move to your personal and professional background, how how did you come to this point, and how how did you move from travel behavior to physical activity? Sure. So I'm, I guess I'm a physiologist by training. I, I did my master's in, in physiology, sports physiology. But uh, towards the end of the course, I um, had a lecture from um, Dr. Charlie Foster, who, who, who kind of um, encouraged us to think about the population benefits of um, sport and activity as opposed to the performance side we've been looking at. And, and this was kind of my first um, steps into physical activity and, and public health research and Um, did my dissertation with Charlie and ultimately my my PhD, and we ended up doing a, a project looking at um, measurement um, of I, I think as you mentioned in the introduction um, how 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 good are self reported diaries um, or travel logs mm. indeed um, for walking and cycling and um, and yeah it was this kind of um, looking at measurement in in great detail and coming to try and um, understand some of the Um, strengths and limitations and um, challenges that has really led me, um, you know, to focus now on on things like evaluation, which can rely heavily on on measurement and and also, you know, lots of the science that we do, um, certainly the the quantitative science relies on measurement in some way. So, um, you, you know, it's kind of been a really nice um, avenue into into multiple different kind of study designs and and areas of research. Mm. And and you said about evaluation and research. How do you how do you define the two? What what is the actual difference between evaluation and research? It's a good question, Ollie, and I, I've got to be careful because my definition, you know, may 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 not be the right one, and and may disagree with, um, you know, your your listeners and and other people. Uh, for me, um, research is is quite tightly bound by. Um, the theoretical constraints or theoretical considerations, um, and you know, might might be bound by you know the paradigm and and certain methods, and you know, we might immediately think of the evidence based, sorry, the the hierarchy of evidence from evidence based medicine and um, privileging certain study designs or study types over others. Um, whereas I think evaluation is is much more focused on the real world. Um, you know, decisions have to be made regardless of whether the perfect study design is possible and mm. you know therefore you know we have to be far more flexible in our approaches to what we can learn about the world and, and what we can learn about policy and health promotion to, to try and you know um, at least offer some useful evidence for the for the for the next round of decisions or decision making so um, 
you know, I don't know if that answers your question, but I think it 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 it, it's, it goes some way to kind of outlining how I might see the two as as not being exactly the same thing. Mm, yeah, I, I get your point, and and as you wanted to bring this up, do you see that it's important to distinct the two, and are we going wrong way sometimes when we mix mix those two? I think it's absolutely crucial to think about the difference between the two, and. The reason for that is because I think the words the words research and, and evaluation encode so much information. And we, we have to understand that if we choose to use one or other word, the person who hears that is, you know, is going to make a ton of assumptions and extrapolations on what we might be talking about, what we might be planning to do. So, you know, if, if you are talking to a policymaker or if you are talking to a practitioner or if you are talking to a academic. I think it's really important to think, you know, how are they going to understand um, my meaning when I choose to use one word or the other? Um, it, you don't have to necessarily agree with their meaning, but, but I do think you have to understand the implications of using um, either word um, in your in your translation and in your communication. Mm. And and when you you are doing doing your studies, are you doing more evaluations or are you doing more research? I think on balance, it's probably half and half. Um, you know, we we do do lots of what I might call classical research in our um, institute, in our research center. And more often than not, when we're working with students, that's much more in a research paradigm um, in terms of their training and, and their development. Um, but as soon as we start working with organizations that are doing health promotion in the real world, whether that's the health service, whether that's local government or whether that's charities in the third sector, you know, I think we're very quickly starting to talk about evaluation type work, um, due, you know, due to the nature of, of trying to do things in the real world with with real world constraints and, and realities. Mm. And and if we go a little bit more to the methods, uh, you, you have been teaching the physical activity measurement classes, for example. Why, why is measuring physical activity so hard? <clears throat> it's an excellent question, Oli. Um, I think it's because physical activity is such a complex set of behaviors, um, you know, that range from walking to gardening to yoga to what we do in the workplace to what we don't do in the workplace or at home. And that they can be looked at in in terms of so many dimensions. You know, the, the classic ones are the fit dimensions, frequency, intensity, time, and type. Um, you know, but we've also got questions about why someone's doing it, how it makes them feel. Um, you know, what was their motivation? What were the barriers and facilitators? Um, you know, the, the fact that intensity is could be considered as relative or absolute. So there's all of these considerations, and and then we say, right, I want to measure that, but I need to do a you know a survey, and I'm only allowed one question. So I think we we often set ourselves up to make the challenge far too hard by you know thinking that it will be straightforward. Well, I'll I'll just pick one device, or I'll just pick one questionnaire that can can, can do all of these things. And and of course, I don't think they they can. So I think measurement is hard because we maybe try to do too much, um, you know, with too few resources most of the time. 
Mm, yeah, that, that makes sense. So you have been doing some studies related to self-reported physical activity. Could you tell more about those studies? Sure. So I guess it, it starts with my PhD, which, um, so we're, yeah, we're going back, uh, goodness, over 10 years now. And we had started to collaborate with Microsoft Research and they had developed a device that they called SenseCam. And SenseCam was a small camera that you wore around your neck and it took a photograph um, approximately every 10 or 15 seconds. Um, now, what made it interesting at the time, you know, going all that way back was that it could store in excess of 10,000 images and it had a battery life of 18 hours or so, which meant you could capture a person's entire day in, you know, 15 second increments of images. And that gave you a really good idea of what they were doing. Were they watching telly? Were they working? Were they cycling? Were they walking? Um, all these things. And and my sense was that, that that kind of gave us an opportunity to do a genuinely objective measurement of behavior. Um, so we asked people to um, wear these devices for one or two or three days and also to fill out various self-reported measures. And and if I'm honest, the the goal at the time was to show how bad self-reported measures were and you know we, we'd say look here's the size of the error so either you can do an adjustment or you should say we shouldn't use it at all and um you know that would that would kind of uh, solve all problems of measurement um, so it was a reasonably ambitious phd and, and arguably um overly ambitious but to my surprise what we found was that um on average if you know if you asked 300 people to fill out a travel diary and then you looked at their images, you found that um, it was really good. You know, if, if the average was 27 minutes a day of walking, the images would say something like 26 and a half minutes. So, you know, a 30 second error or so that, you know, is entirely acceptable for our scientific purposes. Um, also, interestingly, it showed that there was huge individual variation. So, you know, if I asked you to fill out a travel diary, Ollie, you know, you might overestimate the first walk of the day by 20 minutes, underestimate the next one by 15, and forget about the third one. So what 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 it looked like was that self-report was was going to be really problematic to measure individual level behavior and detect change at the level of the individual, which is often what we need to do in intervention, uh, but mm. that it was going to be really good for classifying, you know, large groups of people in, for example, surveillance or trend monitoring, or indeed in you know, the sort of cohort studies where we try and assess risk, um, relative risk for various outcomes. So that was really interesting. And and kind of the second thing that was really interesting was learning that there is no such thing as an objective measure. You know, even with these images, I was having to make decisions about, you know, well, when did it really start? And well, that person left the house to go walking, but they turned around to go and, you know, they'd forgotten their coat or their keys or something. You know, so do I add on the first 60 seconds, the first three minutes? You know, someone's, they've stopped and they've started talking to someone in the street. Are they still out walking? You know, sh should I should I take that time away for my objective assessment or not? So mm. Even though I thought it was entirely objective, um, you know, with the best will in the world, it was, there was still lots of researcher decisions that had to be made. And, and I found that super interesting as well, that, um, you know, we probably set the, set our expectations too high of ever really knowing the truth. Um, about how much activity various people were doing. Mm. And and you said that it was surprisingly good for 
travel behavior? Did you also measure some other physical activities? Like if you, for example, think think about moving around the house, which is probably more difficult to remember than than cycling to work. Did you look at the other other activities at all? Well, I I didn't, Ollie. Um, I have to be honest that I intended to, but um, by the time I'd done all this work on active travel and and thinking about validity and reliability, my, my PhD was over. So I had to really scale back my plans there. Um, but a group in um, that we collaborated with who worked in time use research did exactly this. So um, there's uh, time use diaries are kind of these 24-hour logs where you record everything you do in five or 10 or 15-minute increments through the day. Um, and they did exactly this. They repeated the study design with um, these time use diaries and, again, found you know similar findings that the self-report measures um, were performing far better than, than expected when it came to classifying, as you say, these, these activities of, of daily living. Um, and I think the other really important point there is you know, self-report often gets kind of lumped in as a single method, but you've got diaries, you've got travel logs, you've got interviews, you've got questionnaires, and some of them perform better than others in different circumstances. And and again, I think that's one of the reasons we find uh, measurement of physical activity so challenging is because we don't have a necessarily a really good um, taxonomy or, or systematic map of, you know, the differences and the strengths and limitations of all the various options. Yeah, yeah, and and you said that it it's surprisingly good to self-report. Uh, do you think we should combine the self-report with the with the so-called objective measurement methods when we want to get the best possible results? Honest, I think it depends what what you want to know, um, Ollie. The there are times when a combination of self-reporting devices will give you excellent information there are other times when it's unnecessary and all you're doing is increasing participant burden and probably increasing data loss and dropout because of the protocol you're asking people to follow the i think there's huge opportunities for um, good combination in validation studies or in um, subsamples um, of of our of our you know research to, to to validate a small sample of a larger group And I think there are certain research questions where a, a combination of, I don't know, let's say step count or GPS tracking would be an excellent um, com- in combination with self-reported data about um, reason for, for 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 the activity or indeed the 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 purpose. Was it part of travel? Was it part of work? Was it part of leisure? So I think I think I think we could be doing a better job on those combinations. But but to go back to your earlier question, you know. Very few evaluations um, that I've been involved with would have the budget to do such a thing. So I think we have to also understand that such combinations are, are at the moment likely to be limited to well-funded, you know, academic research studies. Let's have a short break into interview and think about the way we work. You might be walking or going about your daily course when listening to this podcast episode. But when working on a computer, we are easily stuck to static positions, whether sitting or standing. Wouldn't it be nice if you could take steps as you like? There might be a solution for you, a treadmill desk from Germany called Walkerlusen. Treadmill has curved shape and is powered only by you, so it moves in perfect sync with your rhythm. 
It features sliding integrated desk and backrest, so you can keep switching between postures easily throughout the day. It makes knowledge work much better suited for our physiology, so I'm delighted as we can now offer Walkalusen desk treadmill for the listeners of this podcast with 10% discount. To get the discount, use code SITLESS, one word, written together in the store of walkalusen.com. That is written walk, as in walking, and allusion, like the second part of revolution or evolution. So walkalusen.com, check it out, and let's continue with the interview. And and what kind of self-reports you would you would recommend for different kind of situation which ones do work the best if you need to do kind of large scale evaluation for example which which uh, method should you use good question and you know it, the the decision would depend on the study design um, the study question so i think those two things need to be front first and foremost in in the decision making but then I would recommend shorter is better. You know, the more questions you ask, the, the fewer people will will fill it in. Um, and I think, uh, you know, having a having a really good consideration of the delivery format. So, is it appropriate to do this online? Is pen and paper appropriate? Is over the phone the best option for your target group? And and that might depend on age or setting or something like that. Um, and also, you know, giving really good consideration to the wording. In the questions, so often, you know, and and, and I, you know, I, I think of myself first in in this criticism. You know, we use wording that makes sense to researchers, and we use technical things like moderate to vigorous um, and aerobic, mm-hmm. and you know, words which I think are far less well understood, quite rightly, by the the general population. And uh, so I think you know, thinking about self-report measures that use relatable and appropriate. <clears throat> terminology and language is is really important as well. Mm. And and if if we go to these wearable cameras you you mentioned that you have used how how widely they are used in in physical activity research at the moment. Well, I don't think they're used very much at the moment, Ollie. Like I say the the 10 12 years ago when they came out the technology, you know, made them very unique. Um but but, but these days kind of it, um, everyone has a mobile phone in their pocket, which kind of has many of the same capabilities in terms of image storage and and battery life. And you know, also when this research was done, was um, you know, kind of prior to lots of consideration about digital privacy and how much you know our images are shared on social media and um, permissions and things like this. And and I actually think the research would be much harder to do now for for those reasons. You know. If, if you mm. walked around your local um, station or airport or shopping center with a wearable camera, you know I think you, you quite rightly might receive some questions from um, either the staff or members of the public. So um, you know for a number of reasons these these cameras are are not currently really um, part of the the conversation. Um, but I think what's useful is the learning that we gained from them, like I say, both in terms of how self-report performs when you when you make these comparisons and also some of the kind of thinking and philosophy around you know what do we genuinely mean by you know a gold standard or a criterion measure and you know can we ever actually know the full truth about an individual's 
physical activity behavior. Mm. And yeah, I think I have seen some startup doing doing a camera which is doing exactly the same. I think think it's in the necklace or something. And and you can normal people can buy it, but I think the first group they were targeting people with memory problems. So actually, they can this how boost their memory that they actually see images that what has happened to their in in their life especially if you have like short-term uh, memory problems so you can you can see see those uh and you have also done some work on the ethics of the wearable cameras could you tell more about that work absolutely i mean when we were doing the research it was you know and we you know quite rightly as we were designing it and planning it started to seek ethical um approval we realized that there was a bit of a gap uh, in certainly in terms of physical activity and and health behavior research in terms of the considerations that were important when um if you wanted to to do this image capture because what importantly if you ask someone to wear a camera um you you, you collect far fewer images of them than you do of the people that they encounter during the day and that kind of raises questions about you know the the participant in some ways becoming the researcher you know or yeah. or or an extension of the researcher and generating their own data um rather than simply um you know responding to you know the researcher's um protocol or requests so it yeah it it raised lots of questions around i guess second and third party um consent autonomy agency um you know privacy um we we had to do lots of you know really rigorous protocols on how the images were stored and how they were encrypted in case the camera got left on a bus or something and mm-hmm. um you know we had to you know give people full agency to delete images you know if they left the camera on and went to the bathroom or you know they um had the camera in the house and they captured an image of their partner or child that they didn't want you know recorded or added to the research database that we had to put lots of protocols in place to allow them to, to, to delete these images indefinitely um, and of course we had to come up with really good informed consent materials so that when people were making the decision about whether or not to take part they were fully informed about the potential risks and the um you know and how these were going to be mitigated in the study and you know it's all well and good writing a 5000 word academic paper on ethics as we did but that was not going to be any use to a, a normal member of the public in deciding whether or not they wished to take part so you know creating materials that summarize these things effectively but in a format that was readable was you know quite important or well, very important as well so there were there were many considerations that um were were really helpful learning for me you know during my phd in terms of the ethics of research um and and hopefully you know as you said the these these cameras were used beyond physical activity research um and and indeed you know there were applications before we um started using them in in memory like you said but um it does seem that the ethical paper we wrote has been kind of one of those helpful ones to the the wider field in terms of you know doing research that it, that did to best practice principles mm-hmm. yeah so so probably wearable cameras for physical activity research could be used in the validation studies like you used but probably not for for other things that it's ethically a little bit challenging that's largely the the conclusion we came to you're really really effective validation tool unlikely to be 
something that could ever be administered at scale. Um, one of the reasons is, so for my final PhD study, I think I had approximately 300 participants who wore the device for three or four days. I ended up with about three and a half million images, which I needed to click through and code. And, and it took about four months. So, you know, that automatically just puts a, a cap or a limitation on, you know, the number of applications where they could be, um, you know, used as the primary data collection um, tool. But as you say, you know, using them as a validation tool, if you have the time and you have the kind of researcher capacity to do all that coding and, and that, um, I, I still think they have, have utility there. And, 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 and there are groups, you know, still using them. Things um, things developed, you know, and, and halfway through the work, the I think the first GoPro came out, you know, video while people cycle and run and you can put it on your dog and things like this. And, you know, the, te- mm. the technology did develop very quickly. And, you know, I, 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 you know, there's still people who are doing excellent science with, you know, video recording now and, you know, ride alongs and walk alongs and citizen science and stuff. So, you know, the, the field has naturally evolved and, 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 you know, I think while the, the, the specific device that we used is, is kind of now a, a historical, historical piece, um, some of the principles and, and validation principles, I think, have continued to be helpful. Mm. And, and do you think you could actually direct the camera differently that, and position the camera differently? I'm, I'm thinking maybe if you could put it pointing downwards towards your feet, and you would have it, for example, somewhere on the knee level, and it would just be pointing down. So you would actually see that are the legs just relaxing when you're sitting down, or are you walking, or are you on the bike? Have you have you considered this kind of different direction for the camera? Yeah, it's a good question. We I, I don't think we'd considered that specific suggestion. And as you say, if the camera pointed down, you could get probably more private information, as in, you know, less information about the third parties, but just about the participants, um, about their ambulation, about their walking and their sitting. You, you'd, of course, lose information about their screen time, for example, um, and, you know, anything that might involve upper body um, activity. So, you know, depending on what you wanted to know, I think that could be a nice a nice solution. And other things that were discussed were, you know, could you put the camera on top of someone's television set at home so that you could get a sense of how off, how much time people spend sitting in front of the TV on a daily basis. Um, but then, you know, smartphones came along and laptops, you know, people started watching television on their laptops and, you know, the kind of idea of traditionally the family sitting in front of the, the TV suggested that you'd need cameras everywhere in the house. And, you know, maybe very few families would sign up to such a, um, such a protocol, of course. So, you know, I think I think there do remain some really great applications for um, you know different research designs, um, and and each one kind of it, every every new thing you try solves one problem, but probably creates another one that you need to you know balance up and decide what's the the, the, the best approach overall. Mm, yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to think like now nowadays when you buy a new smartphone, it probably has like seven cameras inside it, and and you can buy it with two hundred euros. So the Technology have gone gone so far that you could have small cameras pointing, maybe directed exactly to, for example, to your hand. That is there a smartphone in the hand, and maybe in a way that you wouldn't see other things from it. So I'm just trying to think that could you use this with the new technology, but but probably 
at the moment at least that that would be still be a little bit too complicated maybe maybe one day in the future Ollie, it's um you know i i, I wouldn't be amazed um but yeah i think it, it might be a, a little while away yet Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcast or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.